Welcome back to Health Call Live. If you've got a question, you don't have to give blood to get the answer. Just call us at 447-1190. All right. Welcome back. I'm so glad you stuck around. You know, not a week goes by without stories in the medical press that have something to do with the bacteria, the viruses, and the fungi that live inside our bodies. For example, there's a report this week about a new effort to study the gut microbiome of astronauts to understand why the weightlessness of space causes a change in their mixture of gut bacteria, whether that might affect the health of astronauts, and what would happen on a long space mission, and if there's anything they can do about it. It. So I find this so fascinating, and I came across Dr. Sam Westrick, a PhD, a bioinformatics scientist. He's got just a great knack of explaining things in a way that's easy to understand. I asked him to help us get a better handle on how preservatives in our food could be affecting our health and whether that's something we ought to be concerned about. Preservatives help prevent spoilage in food due to bacteria, and of course, that's a good thing. But what happens when you eat them day after day after day? They're not really like taking an antibiotic, which carpet bombs your gut and can kill almost everything. But Dr. Westrick says food preservatives do have an effect. When we eat foods that contain preservatives, what instead happens is our microbiome shifts. It is made up of lots of different species. In the average human microbiome, there's over a thousand different species of bacteria that are all living there in an uneasy harmony. When we make changes by doing things like introducing more preservatives into our diet, that will push down on some species, and then other species will be able to grow more to sort of take over that new opportunity that's opened up. And that's not always good for us. What we find is a lot of times when these new species that thrive in a preservative-rich environment start taking over, they lead to some health issues with us. They can trigger increased inflammation, and they'll actually eat away at the mucus lining of our digestive tract, which can cause all sorts of problems for us. Yeah, let's talk about that for just a quick second to explain that. So that, that mucus lining uh, is really just kind of one cell layer thick uh, on, on the inside of our intestines. And if then those bacteria can come in contact with our immune system, you can set up an awful reaction that creates a number of problems, right? That's right. So our intestinal lining, the cells that make that lining are constantly producing a layer of mucus, which it's kind of like the snot that's in our noses, where it's a little gross, but it's there for a protective effect. And normally, that mucus provides a very comfortable environment for the microbes that live in our digestive system to hang out in. They're able to stay inside that mucus, which comes in a couple different levels. So the first level that's on the innermost side is going to be thinner and more, uh, more fluid, uh, less dense, and then as you work your way closer to the cell wall, the edge of our intestine, that mucus gets thicker and thicker and more dense. This is a great place for these bacteria to hang out. They eat some of the starches and some of the fiber and other compounds that pass through our diet, and they're able to be protective so they won't all be flushed away. And normally, that stays in harmony. Our cells constantly churn out more mucus. Bacteria stay in this mucus. Some of those bacteria will actually eat the mucus as a potential food source, but most of the time they're preferring to eat what comes through the intestine. They're eating the foods that we eat rather than eating away at us. But what happens is some bacteria uh, do eat that mucus, and when those bacteria are present at high abundances, when those bacteria start taking over, they will eat away the mucus faster than our cells can produce it, 
and eventually they break through and they're butting right up against the wall of our, uh, of our intestinal tract. When that happens, as you mentioned, our immune system is in very close contact with our intestinal tract. Our immune cells actually extend feelers through, and they're checking to see what bacteria are there. And it's believed that the immune system actually uses normal gut bacteria as a way to modulate and understand how much of a reaction it should be putting up. Should it be flaring up and causing inflammation because it thinks there's an invasion, or should it be staying calm and at a very low level of activity? When the bacteria eat away at too much of the mucus and they're butting right up against the wall of our intestine, what happens then is that they hit all of those immune sensors and our immune system starts overreacting and saying, oh my God, these bacteria are breaking through and it'll flare up. And that's where we get inflammation, uh, colitis, and other problems that can come and can be associated with gut issues. Yeah, think of them as uh, nasty little bacteria attacking the wall of the castle, right? Yeah. yeah, normally they're okay. We're still producing mucus at a regular rate. And so a lot of the bacteria that are mucus eaters are not necessarily bad bacteria. These guys are not just in there to try and get all the way into our cell wall and cause all sorts of problems. A lot of the bacteria that are normally present in our gut have multiple different systems for picking out food sources. If their preferred food is available, usually that's something that we eat, like starch or fiber, they'll feast on that. They're very happy to feast on that. But if you take away that food source, if there isn't enough fiber, if there isn't enough fermented products, not enough prebiotic meals coming down the pipe, then they'll switch over to eating the mucus as a backup method. And so it's not always going to be that we can separate these into good bacteria, bad bacteria. Instead, it's the same bacteria, which can take either good or bad actions, depending upon the signals that they get from their environment. Typically want to think about eating foods with the smallest amount of preservative is, is going to be best for us, right? Closer to nature, the better you are. But there are so many foods today that uh, we don't think about as having preservatives because they're in the form of an emulsifier. Can you walk me through that and understand what, help me understand what that means? So emulsifiers are compounds that are designed to help, again, keep our food stable. If you think about something like uh, a liquid that you might keep on a shelf, you really don't want that liquid to solidify. You don't want it to separate. And so that's where emulsifiers come in. And so these are great ingredients if you're looking to preserve your food because they help keep that balance and they help sort of suspend everything in a kind of mix. That's great for stabilizing. That is not super great for our microbiome. There's a lot of foods, like if you think about mayonnaise, where it's kind of liquidy, but it stays in that sort of soft, semi-liquid state, and you can leave mayonnaise on the store at the grocery store for weeks, and it's still fine. Think about pasta sauces, where they stay that nice, creamy liquid when you grab them at the grocery store. Think about um, certain types of peanut butter, where it's always going to be smooth and spreadable, no matter how long it's been sitting. The way all of those foods are able to remain stable is through this addition of emulsifiers. And so these are something where there have actually been studies that have said, what happens if we feed high levels of emulsifiers? What we see, again, is that colitis. We see the inflammation that happens in the bowel because the emulsifiers are encouraging the growth of bacteria that feast on mucus rather than feasting on fiber and other ingredients that are coming through the diet. And that leads to irritation as those bacteria eat through that mucus layer and get up against the gut wall. Okay, so it sounds like it's a good idea to avoid those synthetic emulsifiers. But I'm also hearing lots of voices say there's something else in foods that may be causing inflammation and other problems. And I'll bet if you go to your pantry right now, you're going to find it in almost everything on the shelf. 
So stay tuned, and we'll rejoin Dr. Westrick to learn more about processed seed oils and how you can live at peace with your microbiome. And we do that after we hear from businesses I hope you'll support, because they support the Health Call Radio Hour. This is Health Call Live. We're glad you're listening, but don't be afraid to call and ask your question on the air. It's free, non-invasive, and best of all, you don't have to wear an exam gown. Now, back to health and wellness correspondent Lee Kelso. And this half hour, we are looking into how the community that lives inside of us reacts to what we feed it. The food that we eat is food for the trillions of bacteria, viruses, and such that lives inside our digestive tract. So many of our favorite foods contain preservatives, and these chemicals can change the bacterial mix in ways that can influence our health. A growing number of people are raising questions about not just preservatives in processed foods, but the type of oils used to make the things that we love love to eat. Studies have shown that certain oils extracted from corn, sunflower, and other seeds contribute to inflammation. Dr. Sam Westrick has looked into all of this, so I asked him to explain what there is about these seed oils that's causing concern. So seed oils, I think, is interesting because when we're talking about oils, what we're really talking about is fat. Oils are just liquid fats, and the idea is that fat comes in a few different types. So really briefly, we have, uh, you've probably seen these on nutrition facts and nutrition labels. We have unsaturated fats, we have monounsaturated fats, we have polyunsaturated fats, and we have trans fats. These are sort of the four main categories. So really, when we're talking about seed oils versus, for example, beef tallow or butter or avocado oil or olive oil, what we're really talking about when we look deep at the food is the different types of fats, these four types of fats. And... What's come up, I think, in recent years is the idea that some of these fats are associated with things that aren't good with us. And because of that, there's actually been a backlash against the oil itself. Yeah, I, I've, I've read that uh, the category that these fall into, according to some activists, is they're not evolutionarily compatible with our systems. So uh, if you are artificially creating these oils by hydrogenating them, um, we don't really know what impact that is going to have on our bodies. Do you think that's anything I ought to be concerned about? So I think that's an interesting statement because it's partially true and it's partially false. Some of the seed oils that we take, like, yes, we probably would not have encountered this at that level 10,000 years ago, but we also didn't encounter things like citrus 10,000 years ago. There's a lot of foods that we eat. Practically everything in our diet these days is something that our ancestors didn't encounter. So that, that throwback in saying these aren't natural and therefore they're bad is, I think, a false conclusion. That's kind of an appeal to nature. And a contrast that you might point out if somebody brings that up is to point out the fact that, you know, 10,000 years ago, our ancestors were out in the sun, they ate all natural foods, and they died at the age of 35. Maybe that's not necessarily <laughs> the path we want to be going down. But I do think what, what we do need to consider is that, yes, some of the fats that are especially processed are not good for us. Uh, trans fats in particular tend to be quite bad for us. And those are the ones that you find most commonly in foods that we we know are unhealthy. If we talk about something like uh, a Twinkie, which is my favorite example to go to just because we all know about it, that little yellow cake that's surprisingly shelf stable. The way that they put oil in that cake in order to make sure that the cake does not break down is they hydrogenate it. 
Basically, they make it so that oil will stay as a solid at room temperature. And hydrogenated oils have been shown to be associated with uh, greater risk of heart attacks, uh, higher blood pressure, and other issues. But we shouldn't lump all of the seed oils, so to say, into this category. There's a lot of seed oils. If you think about uh, canola, peanut, sunflower, safflower oils, these oils are mostly monounsaturated fats, and they're actually shown to be correlated with a lower risk of heart disease, lower levels of inflammation. So a lot of the accusations, they may have targeted some fats that are bad for us, but there have also been some more innocent fats, let's say, that have been caught in the crossfire. So I love to ask people like you who study this stuff and understand it far better than I, with everything you've learned and what you know, how do you manage life maybe a little differently than I might? What are, what are some habits you've adopted with the information that you've gathered? I'd say one of the things that I've found is that a lot of fads and a lot of new trends in health still come back to what we know. And it is the unsexy truth, but a lot of our dietary choices are the obvious choices. Michael Pollan has this great quote where he says, eat real food, not too much, mostly plants. If you want to consider what our ancestors did, if you want to look back, our ancestors, they didn't eat meat at every meal, at least most of them didn't. If you're talking about certain tribes, perhaps, but most of our ancestors, they mainly ate plants, they ate berries, they ate primarily raw foods. They didn't do a lot of real processing and breaking down foods. And they ate a lot more fiber than what we tend to get in our diet today. And so what I've tried to do in my own diet, what I see as the best approach is, first off, I don't hold myself to a super strict standard. I don't say no processed foods ever. Trying to stick to some diet like that for our entire lives is going to be a recipe for disaster. On the other hand, what we can do is we can say, I'm going to try and make sure that I eat mostly plants in my diet. I'm going to try and not have meat all the time. I don't need meat at every meal. I'm going to try and just minimize the amount of processed stuff that I take in. I think a lot of us, when we go to the store, we're able to look around and we can say, if I get a salad, that's going to be healthier for me than if I go and get some French fries and some chicken nuggets. We know this. And sticking to those sort of common sense choices is really going to be the thing that makes the biggest impact for most of us. There are a few people out there who I know are going to be at the pinnacle of health, and they're going to care about doing things like optimizing your level of omega-3 versus omega-6 fat. And people may say, you know, I want to make sure that these are balanced. Most of us are not going to be at that level of optimizing our health. If you look around at your diet, if you think back to what you ate for the last week, if you had any white bread in there, if you maybe grabbed a donut for breakfast, if you decided that you did a really good job one night and so you're rewarding yourself after dinner with a glass of ice cream, maybe uh, you notice that you've been having a few sugary sodas. If that's the case, at that level where most of us are, we don't really need to worry about optimizing our nutrition all the way down to that micro level. Instead, there are some pretty clear uh, common sense choices that we can make. Overall, we want to try and not overeat. We want to try and use less processed ingredients. We want to try and mainly focus on plants. And we want to try and stay away from foods that contain a lot of preservatives or have gone through a lot of modification in order to make them shelf-stable, which tends to strip out a lot of the nutritional value for us. 
There is more of my conversation with Dr. Westrick in a video version on the Health Call website. Just go to healthcall.live. One thing you're going to hear is that above all else, we need to eat more fiber. Our great-grandparents are said to have eaten as much as two times the fiber we do today. So more whole fruits and other parts of the plants that today people don't eat so much. Things like, well, potato peels, for example. That's fiber our bodies can't digest, but the gut bacteria can. And in doing so, they release vitamins, minerals, and other compounds our bodies need. Well, it's all pretty interesting, and I like the way Dr. Westrick makes it simple to understand, so we'll have him back again in the future. Well, that's all the time we have this week. I hope you'll remember to join us next week for another edition of the Health Call Radio Hour right here on WoWo. You've been listening to Health Call Live. Watch a recording of today's program on the Health Call Facebook page or on the web at www.healthcall.live. Drop us a line to recommend a guest or suggest a topic for a future broadcast. Join us next Saturday at 9 a.m. for another edition of Health Call Live on WoWo 1190 a.m. and 107.5 FM. Podcasts by Federated Media.